Hi, this is Ibadi X, and welcome to another episode of The Candid Frame. One of the challenges about being a photographer is feeling that you're ready. And a lot of people will delay, you know, making a leap in terms of their photography because they feel like, well, when I get enough training or when I have the right equipment or when I have the right experience, then there will be a moment where I will realize that, okay, I'm ready to go. And the reality is for a lot of people that that moment never comes because you either have to just make the choice to just go out there and take the risk and make something happen or you never do. And you just endlessly delay it because you know, that, that moment where you're fully prepared, where you're fully ready, just, just never comes because there's always something else that you have to learn or another experience that you have to have. And so one of the things that I really appreciate about a lot of photographers who I meet and have the opportunity to interview is people who just make the choice and say, you know something, I need to do this and I'm just going to go out there and and make it happen. And today's guest, Robert Larson, is one of those photographers. He's been working on a project called Waiting for Haiti. And even though he has really no formal education in, in terms of a degree in photography and and he's to some degree self-taught, he has, you know, taken the one-year program at the Julie Dean Photographic Workshop, um, he nevertheless took on this project as just something that he needed to do. And the resulting images and the stories he's telling are are, are really impressive. And I was really Looking forward to having the opportunity to interview him and to share his stories with you. And I think you'll take a lot of uh, a lot from this this interview. Um, it does touch on some sensitive issues, so some people may it may be hard to listen to to some of the parts of the story. But I think it's it's nevertheless really valuable, and I'm, I'm really excited about having the opportunity to share that with you. So sit back and enjoy my conversation with Robert Larson. This episode of The Candid Frame is sponsored by Adobe Lightroom 4. Perfect your photography from shoot to finish with Adobe Photoshop Lightroom 4 software. Now, one of the things that you discover as you start shooting with a digital camera is that the file that you produce in camera is just your starting point. It's it's the raw material by which you get to see your vision to completion. And the develop module in Lightroom 4 has all the tools that you need in order to see that through. From cropping your images to color correction to sharpening to everything imaginable you'll find within this one great application. It makes a huge difference in my photography. And when I see my images through to that final print or when I post it online, Lightroom provides me everything that I need in order to make sure that that image is optimized to its full potential. And I think you'll find the same for your own images. And if you haven't tried Lightroom before, now is a perfect time to use it. You can actually download a full version of Lightroom 4 by just clicking on the link on the website at thecandidframe.com. And if you already own a version of Lightroom 4, then click on the link as well, because there you'll find a host of different resources provided by Adobe on how to make the most of this great application. So try it today and discover how Adobe Lightroom 4 can make all the difference in your photography. (music) 
We also have the support of Squarespace. And our friends at Squarespace have this great product, Squarespace 6. It's a do-it-yourself website builder that helps you to make a website or blog in just a few minutes. Squarespace handles all the hosting, gives you a free domain name, and has 24-hour customer support. Everything on the platform is drag and drop, so it's incredibly easy to use. For example, you can drag pictures straight from your desktop and create custom layouts with multiple columns and text that wraps perfectly around your images and videos. The new templates are clean and crisp. It puts the focus on your photography. Additionally, you can switch to a different template at any time. And unlike a lot of the other ready-to-made website uh, services that are out there, these templates have been redesigned and they have some new templates there that really showcase your images beautifully. One more thing that's really special about Squarespace is that your images will look great on any device because the website you create will scale automatically to fit perfectly on an iPad, iPhone, computer, or any other device. Import content from your blogs and push your content back onto your social network. Go to squarespace.com forward slash candid frame to start a free trial. No credit card is required. When you're ready to purchase, click enter an offer code below the pricing at checkout and enter the offer code candidframe 11 to get a 10% discount. That's squarespace.com forward slash candid frame offer code candid frame 11. One word, candid frame 11. Well, Robert, welcome to the candid frame. Thank you for having me. Um, you sent me an email a while back, so it just took me a while to finally get to you. But I'm really excited about having the chance to talk to you about the work that you've been doing. Uh, particularly this project in, in Haiti. And when I was reading on your, on your blog, it was really interesting that you had been doing some traveling and you had been, you know, taking pictures. And it seemed like there was some sort of epiphany that you had uh, as a result of the kinds of pictures that you were making that sort of ended up leading you to the kind of work that you're doing now. And, and it was, can you tell me a little bit about what that was for you? Absolutely. Um, I just started taking pictures of anything and everything, experimenting for a while, and I loved traveling. So I didn't have anything specific when I would travel that I wanted to photograph, just maybe the experience. And I really enjoyed doing that. And whenever I was home, I would be photographing my grandparents who I lived with. I wasn't intending to document their life at all. It just, that's kind of what ended up happening, or at the end of their life at least. So... I was kind of juggling these two things, which was like random travel photography and then the documentary images of my grandparents. And then I went to India with a with a stock photographer who was a teacher of mine. And just he and I, it was like the most intense workshop imaginable. So we were together for about three weeks. And he was teaching me everything he thought there was to know about stock photography. And... We got some really great images, but it just, I was getting really frustrated, I guess, with how he was constantly swapping lenses or telling me to constantly swap lenses and these different effects to put on images. And I started feeling like we were traveling around looking for like the coolest images. And I was learning a lot, but I, that was when I really had an epiphany. I just didn't want to do that. Mm -hmm. I didn't, I didn't want to take stock photos bright, pretty, 
travel images. And so when I came home and I didn't really know what I should be photographing, I just kept kept on with my grandparents and slowly realized that that was what I wanted to do, was at least to focus on stories, something specific. What, were, what was happening with the images that you were making of your grandparents? What did you see in those photographs that you weren't seeing in the photographs that you, weren't, that you were making when you were traveling? The pictures of my grandparents, just they meant something to me. And even if it wasn't my grandparents that I was photographing, even if it was just, say, like friends, it, it, it had meaning behind them. It wasn't just an anonymous woman on the street with you know, interesting face paint. Or whatever, that that stuff had no meaning to me. Mm. In your blog entries, you talk about the impact of their loss, and you also mentioned uh, the loss of of a dog. Mm-hmm. And in both cases, you know, the camera seemed a way of you sort of processing that loss. And I thought that was a really interesting observation that you made about that. Can you talk a little bit more about how you use how you use the camera in that respect? I've actually been thinking about this recently. I, I, you, you could say maybe that it was a way of hiding behind the camera. I mean, that's a commonly used term when people photograph something that's just emotionally difficult. So I'm sure there was some truth to that, but I think it, it was also the fact that I was incredibly fascinated by it because my, my dog meant the world to me, you know, Annie, and I, you know, she slept on my bed every night for 12 years, and, you know, whatever family problems I was having growing up, maybe I wasn't consciously aware of, Subconsciously, they were they were making an impact, and all along I had my dog. When she died, I just it just felt I'd never been through something like that before, and and so I just felt like I needed to take a picture. It's kind of weird, <laughs> probably. I mean, I photographed her. Uh, she she died in her bush, her favorite bush, and so I picked her up and I put her on her bed, so she looked like she was sleeping, and I took a picture. I actually spent the, like most of the night out out there with her. Just like you know, crying and holding her, and she <laughs> she warmed up, and it's probably kind of weird, but it felt comfortable to me to do it that way. And then a couple of years later, when my grandfather died, actually after I photographed Annie, I told my grandparents, I said, hey, I, have a, "I have a weird question for you. Do you mind if I photograph you once you pass away?" And they both laughed. <laughs> they said, "Well, sure. I mean, yeah, of course. I'll be dead. I don't care because <laughs> <laughs> they were so used to having me around with the camera, anyways." So, so I did that when, when they both passed away. For, for a while, I kind of I thought I saw the, that series of pictures as being the end of their life, and that's sort of how it would shape them, it would be like them in their home together watching Unsolved Mysteries or something, and then them transitioning into them at the nursing home together. And then, you know, the, the night Grandpa passed away when his, you know, his kids and grandkids were there. And then Grandma alone a little bit, and then her finally passing away. And for a while, I would arrange them like that and that sort of felt right to me but but now and the reason I've been thinking about this recently is I just went through them all again and I, I put together a series that was much more of a celebration of their love for each other mm-hmm. which I have a lot of those images too and so at the time that was my way of dealing with yeah. things I mean, I'm, thankfully my parents are still around so I haven't lost them and when I lost my grandparents it was a very long time ago so I lost a dog. I lost a cat probably some years ago. And that was the first time I'd experienced death immediately in a long time. And I remember, because she had to be put down, and I remember being in the vet. And I remember feeling that pain, but I made, it was, I made a conscious decision to be really present. And I was there 
with her completely. I wasn't sort of distracting or not wanting to be there, sort of escape from it. And I, I suspect that, you know, by using the camera, and tell me if I'm wrong, but I think that part of it is not so much escaping, but, but really being conscious of the moment and not, not running away from it, actually doing exactly the opposite, saying, I'm here, I'm aware of all my senses, not only my eyes, but my ears, my scent, everything. I am here, right now, and I'm not elsewhere. Absolutely. It's actually kind of weird, now that you mention it, um, I think when you photograph something like that, emotionally it puts up a little bit of a, it, it, it emotionally protects you a little bit, but I think you're right. You are so much more aware of things because you're taking pictures. Mm-hmm. So I guess it dulls one sense and heightens many others. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the project in, in Haiti. They had the, the big earthquake there in 2010. It's, I think it's unimaginable to most people what happened there. In reading for this interview, you know, the, the numbers of people that died ranged anywhere between 46,000 to 300,000. Mm-hmm. And even if it's on the low end, even 46,000 people is sort of... It's, it's, it's a number that's hard to quantify when you think about mm-hmm. individual lives. And one of the things I appreciate about your images is the fact that you're returning there, that you're going there, because there was a huge flood of photographers soon, soon after the, the, the earthquake happened. But like most, you know, most tragedies like that over time, the story gives way to the next crisis. And few of those photographers ever return again. I really appreciate the fact that you're going back there continually to sort of reveal the story in terms of the way you see it and the way you experience it through the through the lives of the people who, who you touch. But but why why go there? Why is Haiti a draw for you? Why is it so important? It's kind of funny. My fiance was t- sensing I was in, I had some anxiety about this interview, and so she was asking me some test questions. This is exactly when she asked me, and we had a conversation of the fact that I actually don't really know what it is about Haiti that attracted me there. I have a couple I- ideas, maybe. I I spent three months in Liberia. That was my first time in sort of like an African country. Also, uh, it was, you know, American slave colony, whereas, you know, Haiti's French. And maybe it felt familiar to me because I had a very powerful experience when I was in Liberia, just because I'd never been anywhere like that before. And I was always thinking about it ever since I got back. When I was in Liberia in 2007. It just seemed natural. I'd always wanted to go to Haiti. And and part of the reason was really just sort of personal. I, I'm fascinated by voodoo and and Mardi Gras and those very cliche mm-hmm. ideas people think of. So I thought it would be a fun place to travel to. So I had I had you know, I'd always wanted to go there and then well it was like it was the thing about my grandparents again. Uh, once they were gone, I really wanted to shoot something that would be meaningful to more people than just myself. It was like perfect events coming together in a, a tragic way, of course, but that's the best I can do. Yeah. And and meeting my friend Jean-Marie there, which was very unexpected. I didn't go to Haiti planning ahead of time to continuously return, but I met Jean-Marie and he, he's one of my best friends now. And so he, I think, provided my emotional link to the country, which... I was needing. Otherwise, I would have just, you know, maybe going, keep going back, but it would, I wouldn't be as invested in it. Yeah. And I think that relationship is really sort of key because you, you talked oh, yeah. about earlier about, you know, traveling and then just sort of shooting images, shooting mm-hmm. 
And I think that the relationships that you've developed in Haiti has helped you sort of focus in terms of the photographs that you that you've produced. So, so talk about your relationship with him, how you met him, and why, and why that relationship has been so important towards towards the project. He's actually he's kind of been the key to to it everything so far. Um, I met him very randomly. I had my first trip to Haiti. I had taken I took two friends with me. One was an EMT, and and the other one really wanted the experience. And I was probably a little nervous too. I didn't want to necessarily go completely alone, even though it was probably more dangerous for the three of us than just me. But once we got to Port-au-Prince, it, we were really too afraid to go anywhere because there was obviously a lot of agitation and danger to, to not knowing where you're going or who you're around or where you are. So we kind of stayed in our little camp area and two days went by and I didn't, hadn't taken a single photograph in, in Haiti. We had, we had spent quite a bit of time on the border at a hospital where a lot of Haitians were being treated. We, once we made it into Haiti, we, we saw almost nothing but our tent for two days, and I was getting really frustrated because I didn't know what to do. So I, I, I just decided I was going to go for a walk, and I didn't want to worry about anybody else but myself. So I, kinda, I left my two friends behind, and I just walked out the gates to this like industrial compound where we were staying. It was guarded by the UN, so it was safe. And I just started walking down the street right away. Looking back, this is very weird. But I passed him, Pastor Armory walking out the gates. He was standing there. I noticed him, nothing specific. I just noticed him. I remember seeing him standing there. And I, and I was looking around, wondering what direction I was going to walk. And I was just getting myself kind of psyched to pay attention and not do anything stupid or remember where I'm going and how to get back. So and then I eventually just picked a direction, which was I think towards the airport, and uh, started walking. And it's the same time he started walking too. Um, well, actually, he was he was ahead of me, so he started walking, and then I just started walking behind him. And I don't know something about him. He was very casual. He just seemed confident. He seemed like this untouchable man, mm. which is n- not at all how anybody else was acting. So I, I kind of quickened up. I, I walked next to him a little bit. And he looked at me and he kind of gave me this like weird smirk because I think he could tell I like caught up to him. So we like these two strangers that were walking down the street together and he was just looking at me out of the corner of his eyes and I was looking at him and then finally we caught each other looking at each other and we looked at each other full on and he just was like, you know, what's up? I'm like, nothing. And we just kept walking. <laughs> and, and then he started laughing and I started laughing and then we actually just started talking. He was just like immediately, he was just this special individual. Mm. And we had this kind of this friendship connection almost right away. It's interesting because you look at the images and so you're, you're, some of the images involve you sort of telling his story. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also sort of documenting the impact of the earthquake and the long-term recovery effort there. So I, I want to talk about the, the story and the pictures of, that you've been doing of Jean-Marie, but talk about the challenges of being there because... That earthquake was devastating, regardless of how many people lost their lives. There were countless number of people who were injured. Complete infrastructure, which was never ideal to begin with, you know, is completely devastated. You're there with a camera. You're white. You're American. You're dealing with a lot of not just logistical challenges, but cultural challenges. And, and people who need a lot of help were seeking a lot of help. And the last thing they're thinking about is some guy with a camera pointing it in their direction. So how do you contend with all that? 
actually, I don't ever take photos of people that, um, well, <laughs> I was going to say I don't take photos of people that don't know I'm taking a photo of them. That's not entirely true, but I never invade people's space. I just, I don't really do a lot of street photography, so I don't put myself in a situation where I would be photographing somebody that wouldn't want me photographing them or wasn't aware that that was my intention. So I avoid the issue completely of pissing somebody off or being insensitive by, it's just sort of basic rules. But always making sure people know that I intend to take their photo. And mm-hmm. it's, yeah, it's, it's been a good system. I didn't really intend for it to be a system, but that's just how I conduct myself there. It's saved me a lot of trouble, I'm sure. Yeah. So what were some of the challenges in terms of shooting and, you know, getting access to some of the, some of the facilities or, or spaces that you wanted to, you know, photograph in? Actually, gaining access isn't really hard because everything is so corrupt over there. I haven't found any doors that money can't open. Hmm. And that's, you know, that's where Jean-Marie comes in and he just sort of negotiates and tells me what I need to do if it costs me some rubber boots or something that I have to carry my backpack or if it costs, you know, some money, then we've always just done that. That, that method doesn't expose truths. You can't bribe somebody into telling you something. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you could try, but you're, it's so, you'll probably not get really anything factual. But as far as just getting into situations and, and seeing with your own eyes what's going on, it's, it's been our tactic, and it, and it works very well. Hmm. Getting around in Haiti is the hardest part. I, 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 don't ever, I don't go with enough money to rent a car or anything. I, I, don't, I can't afford that. We, we oftentimes rely on, on, uh, on Jean-Marie's friends or or. The best time is when we walk somewhere. That's usually where we get to where we're supposed to be going at the time it's supposed to take us and, and then come back. But it always gets complicated whenever we try to go somewhere beyond walking distance because your drivers are unreliable. They won't show up or they'll tell you you need to pay for something to be fixed on their car. And mm. then you don't have a choice but to just risk it and give them the money and, and they, then they don't show up and they just take it. And then that thing doesn't get fixed. So it's been really difficult. Uh, the only reliable transportation we've found so far is motorcycles, and it's very, very thrilling. <laughs> but, but at least at least you're right there with the driver, and you got your arms around him, and he's not going to do anything stupid. So it's difficult, really hard. Yeah, I was reading that you work really simply, that you don't take a bunch of bodies and a bunch of different lenses. You like working with you know one or two lenses primarily. Why do you like working so so bare bones? I really don't like thinking about the technical stuff. That's really the main thing. I, I, I don't want to be concerned with which lens is going to be appropriate. If I, if I don't have the lens that's appropriate, then I don't worry about the photo that I missed. <laughs> mm. I don't get caught up on it. The first time I went, I took a few lenses and would carry my bag around with me. And the second time, I took a bunch of stuff with me, but I ended up the entire time using a 24 millimeter prime. Is a 1.4 because I knew it gets real dark in Haiti because there's a lot of power outages, especially in Jean-Marie's neighborhood. And so it was the brightest lens I had. I never took it off in, even when it was daytime. And, and so then I knew that that was what would work for me. So then the second or third trip, I rented a Fujifilm X-Pro1. I got two lenses with it and I only ever used one. I used the 18 because it fits more into the frame. Yeah. So that's it. I, I just don't think that much about it. You talked about you had some preconceptions of Haiti, you know, mm-hmm. in terms of the culture, because you really didn't know much about it when you, you know, when you initially went there. How do you contend with that sort of assumption in terms of 
who these people are, what the culture is, and not having that result in you creating images that are stereotypical, that are that are more a reflection of your, for lack of a better word, ignorance in terms of who they are, what they are, what they're sort of going through. Because I think that, that that's always a concern when you have someone from another culture, particularly from another class, another race, come in to document a world that's completely unfamiliar to them. You know, and how do you avoid images that may reveal some sort of truth the way you see it, but not necessarily the way the people who are existing in that in that place and were enduring all those things would see themselves? That's actually a really good question, because I don't think you can avoid it. I've, I've taken a lot of pictures that would be considered cliche of photographers going to Haiti and taking pictures and what people expect to see. I don't, I don't try to. But at the same time, I, I, I don't try to be hyper aware of avoiding cliches. And because then you, I found myself making very, I don't know, I, I'm blanking on a good word, but artistic images that are just very, have a lot of intent and aren't very honest. Hmm. So I just, I, I try not to think about it too much. Um, and I don't worry too much about taking stereotypical images. Because I know that the more I know it's unavoidable, and I know that the more I go to Haiti, the more I'm going to become comfortable with their culture, and the people I know there will become comfortable with me. And the more I go, the less stereotypical pictures I'm going to take, because those boundaries will come down, and my ignorance will slowly dissolve. And I think that's really, and it is one of the most important things about continuously going back to a place that is very different from where you're from. Yeah. There's a responsibility that you're taking on by the fact that you're going back there. Yes. Repeatedly. I think there's some, some ownership about recognizing that you are sort of, you're human. You're, you're, you're limited by your own life experience in terms of what you can do. But the fact that you're, you're aware of your own biases, some of them conscious, some of them not so, but that you don't let that sort of hamper your ability to be able to go out there and make the photographs. One of the th interesting things about a uh, situation like that is that it's so chaotic, you know, and it's so unpredictable. What do you decide to shoot? Well, I, I, I definitely wouldn't be able to machine gun things because I, I try not to attract too much attention, <laughs> and, and I use a small camera. That they don't. I use inexpensive equipment. They don't have that capability, thankfully. But um, when I first started off, you know, my first couple trips, it was. The first one, I had no specific idea of what I was going to photograph. Just whatever I saw that was interesting, I uh, just used my own weird judgment. Uh, second trip, uh, my intention was to, you know, I, I lived with the Michelle family. Well, lived with them is a strong word, but it was, you know, I spent two and a half weeks with them, and I got to know their routines and the, the, what goes on in their neighborhood. The cockfighting, church, sitter, women sitting around getting their hair done, all the the things that just happen. So that was my intention was to photograph that. Uh, but I'm now starting to get really specific and focus in on exactly what it is I, I need to photograph in order to, to accurately tell a story. So uh, for instance, this, the last trip, I knew I really wanted to wrap up my, my essay that was sort of developing on, on the morgue and what was going on there. And I, and I had to, I couldn't just shoot these freezers because those those images are not as powerful until they're contrasted with an actual funeral, for instance. Mm -hmm. You see how people would like to be treated, and you compare it to how many of them are, and that becomes more powerful. So I, I am becoming more 
a professional, you could say, yeah. of not wasting time and, and going there and knowing exactly what I want to well, let's let's talk about those series of images regarding the morgue. You know, because of the amount of people who died, in terms of proper disposal of bodies, just became completely unmanageable. And with the corruption that you mentioned, makes things all the difficult. But your entry into that story was a very personal one. Mm-hmm. So why don't we talk? Why don't you talk about about that? It was a Ronaldo. From the from the very beginning, I went and went to the morgue and took pictures. Going back to the stereotype cliche thing yeah i i felt like well there was just an earthquake i i should see what the morgue looks like and that what ended up happening was that sort of led into something actually more substantial later because second trip you know i was introduced to ronaldo who is uh jean-marie's best friend since childhood and we became we became close during the time i was there because he would he would come with us everywhere and sort of watch my back he was really good. He was a big guy. Once, once Ronaldo was murdered, then it became it became personal because I then knew somebody that was in had you know been in those freezers and had been treated you know his body had been treated terribly by the the morgue workers and like I don't know I couldn't not continue following up on that. Yeah, if you can explain to people who have not had a chance to read, read the blog, sure. because uh, you 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 explained it. In many cases, bodies are in the morgue, but they're out in the open air. Yeah. And, and they're not put in freezers unless, you know, someone greases someone's palm. And with the heat and the humidity there, the bodies are deteriorating really rapidly. And delivering the body to the to the families is can be difficult, if not too impossible. Mm-hmm. If you could explain in a little more detail. The corruption there, just at that one morgue, I mean, I, I've heard of stories of a private mortuary doing some pretty terrible things too, but what happens at the HUEH morgue, it's the, it's the morgue attached to the hospital for the main university. A lot of bodies pass through there. So the, the workers have developed sort of a system of generally when a, when a new body comes in, they will sort of assess what the kind of the financial situation of the friend and family. So most bodies, when they get brought in, uh, they don't put them right in the freezer. They, they lay them out and they wait for the family or whoever to come through, if they do, ever. And then they kind of assess the financial situation there. And if they, they figure out maybe they can make some money, they, they, will, they will then make extra costs. And, and, a lot, and the, base, the basic one is that they, they leave bodies in the hallways quite often for extended periods of time. Sometimes maybe just maybe a full day, but sometimes up to, you know, a week or more. Oh. And they get... Uh, pretty bad, as you can imagine, and it, and it really upsets the family. And the family gets more and more desperate to pay them whatever it is they're charging to just put them in the freezer. Mm. And there's, you know, they they have all tons. Of, they have tons of excuses, uh, <laughs> like there's not enough room in the freezer, or uh, that's the main one I keep hearing. There's not enough room in the freezer. But really, as soon as they get a little money, they just there is room, and they just throw them on the pile. That's sort of how it's done. And if nobody comes and picks up the body, it will just stay there in the freezer for an extended period until the government comes in and just they they put them all in trucks and they take them out to the beach. Not the beach. It's by the beach. It's where the main cemetery is for the mass graves. And uh, they, they put them in the ground all, all at once. Hmm. But but it has to get, the freezers have to fill up pretty bad before they'll do that. How difficult was it to 
to use your camera when, you know, when the story all of a sudden wasn't about, you know, these anonymous people and bodies, and it was about someone who you knew and had grown to care for. Well, I had just left when Ronaldo was murdered, so I had been home for about a week. So fortunately, I didn't have to be there to see him, but Jean-Marie was... Summary was taking pictures of the situation so that I could have that information. Mm. So I knew where he was, and I had seen bodies there before in the exact same position. So I, I, I knew it was happening, even though I wasn't there to actually see Ronaldo. Yeah. Have you been back there since that? Yeah. So when, when you went back there, because you, you talk about Jean-Marie's family situation, which I want to get into, um, in terms of the, just the, the challenges he was facing... But did that did that death um, change the way you saw the work that you were doing there? Yes, I, I felt like I really needed to to write it all down to to just go back. I didn't want to go back to the morgue again. I was not looking forward to that. But once once you know Ronaldo had been murdered and and all that stuff happened in the process of just trying to get his body out for burial, I felt like I, I definitely needed to go back one more time and and just really thoroughly photographed the morgue so that I had more images to demonstrate what it is that I was telling people. In case they were like, I don't believe you. Show me a body in the hallway. Well, I can now show a few. So I thought that it was important information to gather. You know, actually, it was the last trip I went that it was even worse. I, I didn't... They, had, they have a man that comes in uh, once a week and they, they bring him... Like maybe a half a dozen unidentified bodies, and he breaks them down and skins them and and uh, separates all the limbs, and it's 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 a very strange thing. With the work that you're doing with 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 Jean Marie, he's not only serving as sort of your guide and and sort of your fixture there, but you're also you know documenting his life there and some of in, this, in his story, um, the story with his his wife, with his with his son. That's some, just devastating stuff. It would be bad enough without the earthquake. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So t- give us a little background in terms of his, his family and life situation and how the impact of the quake and, and the time afterward has made life that much more difficult for him. Fortunately for him, he wasn't too badly affected by the earthquake. His home that he was living in with his family was destroyed. His mom was injured. And so was his son, Jamie, who's um, at the time of the earthquake, he was three years old. But but they healed. Uh, it was nothing critical. He was very blessed to have gotten through that. So what kind of makes his life very unique is, let's see, well, he met his wife on the internet, which is interesting. I didn't know that that was a very common thing for Haitian men to do. It's actually to go online and they, they want to meet American women. And he had a friend that, I can't remember if it was a boy or a girl, but it had met somebody, a significant other online, and was, and that person knew Janelle. So they kind of got set up by friends to start emailing back and forth. So that's how they met, and I fell in love. She came out to visit, and <laughs> bing, bang, boom, he, he proposed like a week into her trip, and she married him. She's been living with him in Port-au-Prince ever since, helping to raise Jamie. It's a very interesting situation. <laughs> and they're, they're a really inspiring couple. I mean, they're like best friends now. But even when I first met him, I was just like, man, I can't believe all the things you two have gone through together. And yeah. 
It's a real struggle with, with Jamie, too, but they're figuring it out. Did you read the essay I put about them on my website Yeah, this morning? Yeah, I was reading about the, the fact uh, about uh, he has a son with another woman. Yes. Yeah. And that they basically sort of share custody, though it isn't like here in the States, and that the mother's you know lifestyle is yeah. anything less than ideal. If you want to get into some detail yeah, about absolutely. that and explain, I'm glad you're able to read it. I just uh, I just finished it and put it up this morning. Basically, strange situation. Jean Marie needed some money, and so he went to a, a sperm clinic and donated some sperm. <laughs> this woman that uh, Ronaldo's cousin is Mara. She's a, a local prostitute and had a crush on Jean Marie for a long time. She went and uh, paid a little money at the clinic, requested his his stuff, and got impregnated. And he <laughs> he went for like I think it was two and a half years. He was having people in his neighborhood tell him, you know, uh, Ronaldo's cousin Mara has a son that looks just like you. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> you know, he, he kept telling people like, I don't have anything to do with her. I, I don't know what you're talking about. Blah 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 blah. And so she ended up. At one point, getting getting thrown in prison, and Ronaldo brought Jamie around and introduced him to Jean Marie, and Jean Marie was was shocked. Like it really does look just like him. So he went and he had a uh, DNA test done. Turns out it was actually his kid. Everyone was very upset at Mara because how did this happen? So she explained. Now that Jean Marie knew, he decided he would adopt Jamie and you know, become legally his parent, at least to have partial custody, for about six months until Janelle married Jean Marie and, and they were starting to raise Jamie together. It was just uh, Jamie and Mara having split custody over Jamie. But uh, he lives, Jamie lives with, with Jean Marie and Janelle, but he spends a couple hours each day with Mara. And it's it's a difficult situation because she's. She's very abusive to Jamie and really has, well, she said at this point that, you know, she has, she keeps her son around because men give better tips. You know, they know that she's a mother and it's a sympathy thing, but she won't give up the rights to Jamie. They want to raise him full time and Mara just won't allow them to do it. It's been a very difficult situation for them. Janelle now, you know, being a very positive influence in Jamie's life, he officially has, you know, a mother. He calls Janelle mom, and she's wonderful to him. <laughs> she's she's very good disciplinarian, and it's great for him. And he's never had that before. But but you know, Mara is very jealous of that situation. She gets progressively more and more abusive. So they've really had a hard time trying to figure out how it is that they can get Jamie in a better situation. You know, you know this this dynamic that's happening in the family. Um, is so intimate and is so personal that, you know, it's unusual that a person that's, you know, pretty much a, a stranger is has the opportunity to sort of witness it. Because most people, regardless of what culture is, is like you keep that family stuff with family. Mm-hmm. You don't open it up. So I'm sure that, you know, that there's a level of trust that, that exists with you. But I'm, I'm curious in terms of, you know, how you feel about it when you're in the midst of that. Because I'm sure that a part of you feels like I wish I could do something, maybe. And but you know you you're there to you know to do to do thing. And even though you're not doing it under the the, the guise of being a photojournalist, there's nevertheless that part of you that is the documentarian, the photographer who's 
looking to reveal a much greater story and a much greater picture, and then also sort of the human part of you that, you know, these are people who you've grown to care about, mm-hmm. and you're seeing these painful circumstances being lived out in front of you. So how do you sort of process that? Well, after the first two trips, I was a little bit of a wreck when I'd come home. I just <laughs> go to my favorite bar and practically live there for a week. But now I deal with it better. And it's because of now my relationship with Chanel and John Marie, it is, it is what it is. So they're no longer just like a subject. It, it's comfortable mm-hmm. for me because... I can keep I keep up with them and I think of them just like I would I would think of any other friend and it's not uh, to me anymore this separate thing it's not a, they're not a project or a story although I I you know they've known for a long time that uh, I've been trying to tell their story I just don't really I don't I don't think of them as that anymore yeah so it's not too hard for me to adjust to coming here it's it's hard when I see something maybe uh, just very culturally different that might be shocking and I haven't seen before but the more I go the less that's going to happen and yeah it's it's better transition yeah. every time it's easier um, one of the things you wrote about was um, about your whole thinking about your career as a photographer you know where you are with your life still trying to figure it out you know because this project that you're working on in Haiti is completely something you're doing on your own. It's not under the auspices of an NGO or a newspaper. But in the midst of all that, you're still trying to create a career as as a photographer. And somehow, you know, those moments where you have doubts, where you have, like, you know, not sure where you're going, or all you know is that you're out there just producing the work. So I'm sure that that's it's a difficult time for anyone who's trying to do live a life that's creative and make a living from it. Well, when I was traveling, and like I had mentioned earlier, I, it was I had had a college fund set up for my grandmother, and I didn't go to college. I used that money traveling, and then in like two thousand, two thousand two thousand one, my dad asked me what I wanted for Christmas, and he, well, he said, I, you know, I got your sister some Disney stock when she was a kid, but so I'd like to, you know, I'll get you a thousand dollars of whatever company you want. And I said, well, Apple, you know, I would, <laughs> I would. I liked Apple. I was growing up. Uh, I grew up using you know Macintosh computers. My dad's very tech savvy, and he said, "Yeah, it's great. You should always, you know, if you're going to buy stock, buy stock at a company you love because then mm-hmm. you care about it, and that's fun." So that's what he did. So <laughs> while I was traveling and everything, and the years were just going by, and I never touched that stock, and it's kind of happen. It's kind of a strange thing. I, um, I was allowed to not have to think too hard about being a professional for a while. So I was traveling and using education money for that. And then when I kind of came out of all that and I realized I really wanted to really get serious about this, well, then I was able to invest, you know, some of that money that I had now from Apple into going back to doing, doing the Haiti trips. So it's, it's been, it's been pretty much self-funded up to this point. And I did get a grant from, some family friends of ours have a foundation. They covered my second trip to Haiti, and then recently they gave me a match grant of a two-to-one two match grant, so of a five thousand dollars. I have to raise ten. And that's kind of where I'm at right now because I know that I know I will keep going back to Haiti, and I will continue shooting any sort of projects I, I love. Because you know they say if money was an issue, what would you do? And that's what you should do. You know, as a career, I would take pictures. I just love it. But now I'm getting to a point where I, I can't, um, 
you know, I had forsaken school. I can't afford to keep keep going back to Haiti for as long as I would like to. So right at this point, I've been this last year. I've been getting very serious about working as a photographer. I've been getting more more and more freelance jobs. I work with my cousin has a company. They do uh, event photography for like Denny's and In and Out Burger and stuff like that. And it's really good hard work, and I and I love it. And in the meantime, so I'm trying to work as a freelance photographer, and at the same time, I'm now going back to school, getting a formal education. I'm at UCLA doing uh, extension, doing the journalism writing program, mm-hmm. and I'm working starting starting this month towards my AA in journalism or photojournalism from Pasadena City College. So I'm starting off. I'm starting fresh. Where most people <laughs> do when they're they're 19, 18, and I'm 27, and now I'm. I'm kind of doing it all out of order, but but you get some interesting at. experience under your belt going in, yeah. which I think is really invaluable. You know, and I think you were writing about that about the mm-hmm. the the value of experience as opposed to just any sort of an education without any sort of context, without any you know something to sort of bounce it off in. And I think that that's yes. that's really valuable. Uh, just experience is uh, obviously wonderful to have, uh, but it it, uh, it doesn't necessarily pay the bills. Or get you the jobs that are required. So it's that's a lesson I've just only learned recently, unfortunately. <laughs> so my last question is: I always ask my guests to uh, consider suggesting another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore, and it can be anyone. It can be a photographer you've long admired, or someone who you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be, and why? You've already interviewed Gerd Ludwig, and he's my favorite. So. David Carroll is my is my my recent love on Facebook. Uh, he's really fun to watch. Uh, so if you have a Facebook account, which you probably do, tell me a little bit about his, about his work. I'm not familiar with him. You know, he shoots in black and white in film, and he is a uh, I think he's a director of photography for NBC or CBS. I can't remember which, but uh, he his personal work is fantastic, and he has he has wonderful books, black and white film. And his he he writes hysterical. Uh, I don't know how to say, little little essays with his pictures when he posts them online, and mm. it's really inspiring because he's a, he's like the most honest sort of gruff photographer I've ever. <laughs> <laughs> it's he just says it like it is, and and sometimes you read his status updates, you're just like, oh, I can't believe he just said that. But his following is growing and growing, and and I'm proud to be one of them, and would recommend it. Very cool. So where can people find out more about you and your work? Well, my uh, personal website is robertlarsonphotography.com, all one word. And Waiting for Haiti is waitingforhaiti.org. Well, thank you, Robert. It was a real pleasure to have a chance to talk with you. The Candid Frame is supported by donations from people just like you. You can help support the work we do here by visiting the website at thecandidframe.com and contributing using PayPal. You can also support the show by writing a review in the iTunes Music Store or by adding a link to the podcast on your website or blog. The editor for this show is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. Music is by Kevin McLeod, And this is Ibadian X, and this is The Candid Frame.